Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Thursday. It's February 23rd, 8 degrees, currently here in Old Town Park City. And on the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Geboy. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Happy Thursday, or as we like to call it around here, happy Friday Eve. The active weather, it's here to be sticking around. We're getting a little bit of a break out there this morning, and that's been kind of nice to allow some folks to dig out of the snow. I know I spent a lot of my day shoveling yesterday, and the Wasatch back in a lot of spots. We picked up over a foot of snow, both Wayneship and Park City both picked up over a foot of snow with our latest storm system. But we do have another one coming in today. So while things are relatively calm right now, that's not likely to be the case, especially by the time we get into the second half of the day. The thing with this particular storm system coming in, though, is it will mainly have the bulk of its impacts be felt in the southern portion of the state. But in northern Utah, we'll still be looking at the chance for scattered snow showers, about a two and three chance that a snow shower finds you wherever you're listening in the northern portion of the state, including the Wasatch back. And we do have a winter weather advisory for the northern Utah mountains that will be going into effect later this morning and will continue through the first half of Friday. But that winter weather advisory does not include the Wasatch back. But I do think that we'll see the chance for some minor accumulations during the daytime hours in Park City, maybe one to three inches. But with a daytime high of only 22 and the breeze expected to stick around, we're going to be looking at a pretty chilly day in Park City. And outside of any chance for wet weather, we'll mainly get partly cloudy to mostly cloudy skies. The chance for snow will drop a little bit into tonight, but still at least a 50-50 chance. And it won't be quite as cold tonight compared to what we're, what we're waking up to this morning as we drop to 16 degrees. And with a little bit more of a southerly flow, temperatures will moderate a little bit Friday into our Saturday, holding on to about a 40% chance of snow on Friday through at least the first portion of the day. Then that chance will gradually go down from the afternoon into tomorrow night. I think tomorrow night brings calm skies. And then on Saturday, looking at some more active weather, but doesn't look any, like anything significant about a one in five chance for snow at the daytime high climbing into the upper 30s. But then we're right back to even more active weather. Sunday into early next week, we have a couple of systems by the looks of it to be lined up. The first one will be arriving most likely by the second half of Sunday through the first portion of Monday. So a good chance for snow between Sunday and early on Monday. Temperatures will start to come back down a little bit. Daytime highs will be closer to freezing, while overnight lows will generally be in the upper teens and the low 20s into early next week. But Monday will have a chance of snow, with that best chance again being from late Sunday into early on Monday. And then snow's looking likely at this point Tuesday and Wednesday with high temperatures again around 30 degrees. So we're uh, getting a little bit of a break right now. So any break that we can get, enjoy it, because <laughs> it's going to be pretty active moving forward here, Leslie. Okay, Thomas, thank you. You're welcome. KPCW News Time now, 808. And with a look at the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center, we've got Drew Hardesty. Good morning, Drew. Hey, Leslie, good morning. We're, we remain in considerable danger at all aspects and all elevations. Um, in the backcountry today, and that's pretty much across much of northern Utah from Logan all the way down to Provo. Um, this storm was a blockbuster, and hats off to the Weather Service for for um, this excellent forecast for us. You know, most of the mountains picked up 24 to 30 inches from the storm. Um, skiing and riding conditions are really out of this world. Um, it just the the snowpack doesn't re hasn't really had a chance to catch its breath you know most of the snow safety teams and backcountry observers I, I spoke to yesterday uh, described conditions as sensitive and touchy widespread long-running um, in part that's going to continue today with uh, uh, increasing southwest winds as we heard the the um, we're going to catch just a touch of a break but then the next storm lines up and the southwest winds have already been blowing and drifting snow 
Um, that's on top of the northwest winds that picked up along the higher elevations um, yesterday. So uh, the wind drifting will be more prevalent in the upper and mid elevations, but we do have lingering um, soft slab and loose snow avalanche potential still uh, on all aspects and elevations. Um, now, word of note, <clears throat> Leslie, um, the avalanche that caught my eye yesterday was in Parley's Canyon at 7,500 feet in elevation, east-facing. Um, it mirrors a, a bit two avalanches that are, were um, triggered yesterday up in the Ogden area mountains, at, also at a low elevation. The, and the ones in Ogden were below 7,000 feet in elevation. Again, this is really unusual for us. We have so much snow at the low elevations. Um, that avalanche conditions are still prevalent and dangerous in some areas below 8,000 feet. So I just want that to be on people's radar um, that if, you know, they may not necessarily think that they're going to be recreating in the low elevations, but even traveling through these low elevations, you know, um, slope, slope angle is slope angle, and uh, people need to assess steep terrain if they're um, even below 8,000 feet um, in elevation. So... A word to the wise for today, and uh, um, as, as we just heard, the, the long-range models, you know, we have storms lined up till the end of time, so we'll see. <laughs> okay. Stay safe out there. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, same. Thanks, Leslie. KPCW News Time now, 811. KPCW News Time now, 812. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. It's the KPCW Local News Hour. Stay tuned. Coming up, we'll be checking in with Summit County Council Member Melina Stevens. Later on, Park Record editor Robert Meyerwitz talking about his new role and vision for the newspaper. And finally, be talking with Timpanogos Middle School Principal James Judd and School District Liaison Yuri Jensen. They'll be telling us about the upcoming Multicultural Night, the first ever. Then stay tuned for Cool Science Radio this morning. Today's guests include Dr. Jamie Farrell, seismologist and professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah, talking about the powerful earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria and what hazards our own Wasatch Fault presents. Then local resident Megan Vita takes us on a cryptocurrency 101 odyssey for those listeners who'd like to sharpen their tools for the evolving financial world. All of that coming up on today's edition of Cool Science Radio. And of course, you can hear Cool Science Radio every Thursday between 9 and 10. KPCW Newstime, now 8.13. Good morning. Well, the Summit County Council met yesterday, and joining me now on the phone with a recap, Councilmember Melina Stevens. Good morning, Melina. Good morning, Leslie. Let's start with the uh, Senate Bill 84 and Dakota Pacific work session. Dakota Pacific was back in front of the council yesterday, this after the approval last week of Senate Bill 84, which I think we're still trying to sort out, but what we have heard uh, basically approved Dakota Pacific's application at this point. So what do you think the work session was able to accomplish yesterday? So as far as the, the bill, Senate Bill 84, Leslie, that was passed last week, that essentially wouldn't give additional density entitlements to Dakota Pacific specifically. Um, as you stated, we as a council are still parsing through the implications of that bill. And separate from that bill, we still have an open application with Dakota Pacific, and it is our obligation as a council to process that application in an open, transparent way, both for the applicant and the public. So that is why we are continuing to process this application um, to the best of our abilities to see if we can get to some sort of agreement or if that's, if that's not possible. So that's where we're at yesterday. We met with Dakota Pacific 
um, had a pretty lengthy discussion, about two hours, surrounding different components of their current plan, which was a decrease from the original plan. Right now it's 727 units of housing, um, with about 33% of that being uh, deed-restricted affordable housing and, and also some housing for seniors. Trying to look at um, some of the feedback we've received from the public um, previously um, with concerns about the density specific to traffic and congestion on um, Highway 224 and the implications of that and also looking at how much affordable housing is there because we know in Summit County that this idea of supply and demand if you just create more then the prices will go down is, is not something that's proven true within our county and so really that's why Summit County and I know Park City also has been pretty aggressive over many years at de-restricting units for affordable housing because that's how we actually can have affordable housing here so those are some of the things that, that we were looking at and where the, the bulk of the conversation surrounded yesterday and we will be having public hearings um, both next Wednesday on the 1st and the following Wednesday on the 8th. And so would encourage the public to please um, tune in. They can attend in person or via Zoom. Yeah. Um, does this project solve any affordable issues? I mean, I think what we've been talking about is that if we don't want to create a bigger deficit of affordable housing, we've got to stop approving the same kind of development projects, projects like this that will add more traffic and create more need for services, in turn creating more need for those lower paying service jobs who then in turn need more affordable housing. Well, and, and Leslie, that's part of what we're trying to parse out and why we've had such ongoing conversations um, <clears throat> Excuse me, with the applicant for um, quite a while is trying to determine how do we get more of that deed restricted affordable housing because again, um, you know, regular just market rate housing is is not going to help with, with our affordability needs. Just creating more isn't going to do that. So that's exactly what we're trying to parse through. Yeah. So when Dakota Pacific CEO Mark Stansworth gave closing comments yesterday, he said he thought that these public work sessions do not work well to hammer out detailed disagreements. But what else can be done to, to resolve any disconnects and maybe agree on some changes? Well, we, we had previously had, um, we, we called it a, we, we had two council members that were working with the applicant, the subcommittee. And so with that, um, you know, that, that is a way that that could be done. We were told by legal that at this point in the process that that's not appropriate. And also it wasn't entirely effective the first time because you have two council members that can try to, to get, get to details and hammer something out. But in the end, you have five council members that have to approve something. So it's it's not, um, you know, maybe it's not as effective as other types of negotiation, but as a public body that must retain an open and transparent process with these types of um, applications, it's, it, it is what it is at this point. And that's the legal counsel that we've been given from the county attorney's office is that this, this is the process. So yeah. whether it's efficient or not, this is what we have. So uh, what's your sense? I mean, do you think Dakota Pacific believes that it needs to make any changes if Senate Bill 84 has been passed? Because they seem to say that it's hard to say if we're able to make changes without knowing what the changes are. 
And I think that's where we've been the last couple of meetings is really trying to, to get to what type of flexibility that they have as far as making changes to their application or if we as a council are simply looking at this this current application um, with the current densities of housing as well as commercial and the other elements um, and deciding if that is or is not appropriate um, instead of a tech park. And so I, as far as last night's meeting, there appeared to be, um, Dakota Pacific stated that there was some flexibility, what that means exactly. Um, we're, I'm not entirely sure. And they they seemed pretty confident that 727 um, units was was right around where they needed to be as far as making this this pencil for their project. So, yeah, I want to get back that's to where that's at. Yeah, I want to get back to that just a, a little bit. But uh, during the meeting, you expressed a desire for a restriction that all of the units be owner occupied primary residences. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking there? So my thinking there, um, I also indicated that fewer units um, with all of them restricted, half of them affordable, deed restricted, and the other half deed restricted primary residents, because at that point we would be filling a need that we have as far as people that are working here, that are trying to live here, having a place to live. It wouldn't get swallowed up in, um, I mean, I made the point of, of nightly rentals or in second homes. Um, they're open to deed restricting against nightly rentals. However, it's still a challenge when you have these units that can be sold just as second homes that can go into these pools. So essentially what I'm after is that whatever housing is there is actually serving our population and not something that's just serving tourism. Yeah, uh, Dakota Pacific, though, wouldn't take a stance on deed-restricting market rate units as primary homes. So, uh, I mean, what are they What are they concerned about there? Basically hurting their profitability, likely, huh? I, again, they didn't state exactly why or why not. There didn't seem to be uh, extreme openness as far as that idea. So I don't anticipate that that becomes part of the application moving forward. I do think that whatever... Whatever housing, if an application is approved, really needs to be something that's serving our population. Um, you know, Chris Robinson is, is want to say that we, if we want to, if someone wants to come and change an application, they need to be in this problem-solving um, arena. And so we're really evaluating, is this project solving problems or is it creating problems? Or is there, you know, what does that calculus look like? And that's what we as a council over the next several weeks are continuing to do. We again are scheduled for the two public hearings the next two weeks and then on March 15th we'll have a discussion and, and possible um, decision at that time to determine based off of the information that we have from the applicant and the information and feedback from the public where we're at as far as this application. So has the Summit County Council heard from any of our local lawmakers about what they think can be done to remedy this essentially takeover of local land use authority? So there's, there's lots of concern, I would say, statewide. Leslie, I went to the Utah Association of Counties legislative meeting last week and requested that the entire group opposed Senate Bill 84 prior to its passing based on this idea of the assault on local control. And um, that group um, overwhelmingly decided to support Summit County 
in opposing that bill based off of this idea of local support. It is a really big issue. And I would say in Summit County as well as in other counties and municipalities because each each city and county within Utah has its own unique attributes, um, different ideas of who and what they want to be, different unique character. And if there's going to be large swath legislation as far as what cities and counties need to do, especially for particular developers in particular areas, that really takes away the ability of local officials to be able to listen to the public for which they serve and respond to that. It, it takes away this autonomy for communities to determine what they want to become and then to actively pursue that. So it is it is a massive issue. It's something that we're seeing, um, we've seen for a little while as far as chipping away at that through various legislation. Um, this, I think, has been one of the biggest and most blatant um, takings as far as that is concerned of local control and the legislature coming in and saying, we're going to, we're going to force you to uh, try to force you to approve this project. Mm. During uh, council comments, council member Roger Armstrong spoke about what he called a false narrative that seems to have taken hold in Salt Lake City that Summit County is a uh, bad actor, as he put it. Uh, so what do state legislators seem to be saying? I mean, is it that they know best? Is it that uh, there really is some kind of genuine disconnect? Or is this just about political expediency? Right now, we have um, a legislature that is largely sympathetic to development community. And so both in Summit County as well as in other jurisdictions through conversations that I've had, that there's this sense that communities are just trying to block development. I would say that, that they're that there are concerns within lots of communities surrounding the increased uptick of development. And a lot of that is because communities want to be able to have a say and understand again in, in who they, who they become and how they develop. There are concerns as far as with communities, um, when you increase development, especially unanticipated development, you have increase in services, um, for education, for law enforcement, for um, roads and infrastructure. There's all sorts of additional costs for that community, and that's part of what we as elected officials need to consider and, and the concerns, I think, for the community as well. And so as far as the legislature's concerned, I, I think there's this desire to, to decrease the deficit for housing statewide as quickly as possible and the narrative right now is just create more housing, that more is going to solve this. Um, a concern that I have with that is without um, having some sort of restriction statewide on nightly rentals, um, that, that makes it challenging to really even be able to serve the, the population of Utah that they're, that they're trying to serve, especially in areas like Summit County or even just along the Wasatch back where you have this desire for nightly rentals and second homes, it's it's not necessarily helping the deficit for Utahns that need housing that don't have it. And so I, I truly don't understand exactly why the narrative is just supply and demand. If we create more, then we'll solve the issue. But that seems to be the narrative. And with Summit County being um, trying to be more 
methodical in how we approach this as far as where housing is going, um, can infrastructure support that, what phasing looks like. I'm also looking at, um, you know, the previous development agreement and what that was trying to solve and if there is still utility to that. It's, it's, it's easy, apparently, to create a narrative that we're just not okay with any sort of development in this county, um, particularly affordable housing, and we are working to um, change that narrative, um, both with press as well as inviting legislators to come up and to tour all of the affordable housing that Summit County has been doing for, you know, the last decade because we have been aggressively pursuing affordable housing. We've had inclusionary zoning of 20% for a very long time. And so we have many, many projects that are deed restricted as well as working with nonprofits to retain deed restricted units that, um, you know, that have, have almost expired so that we don't lose housing. So we've, we've done a lot of work in this area. We have not done a great job at advertising um, and marketing what the work is that Summit County has done regarding affordable housing and why that's important in our community. And so that is something that you will see us as a council focusing on uh, more, more extensively over the next year. Okay, so real quick, again, uh, public input March 1st, March 8th, uh, 5 to 8.30 p.m. at the Ecker Hill Middle School. And then the council has set a date to consider the proposal for approval on March 15th. So that's what we that's where we're at at this point, yeah. Yes, okay. that's our current timeline, and, and again, encourage the public to please uh, come to that public hearing. You can also email us and let us know your thoughts regarding this application. Okay, quickly, a couple of other issues here. We've got uh, the council hurrying from land use planners about creating a cemetery in the Snyderville Basin. Um, again, this is something that started. 10 years ago, um, why is the project resurfacing now? Just because it's kind of not done, huh? Well, there's been absolutely a lot of different projects the council has been working on over the last decade. And with this project, there has been some community members that have taken an interest in this specific idea as far as creating a cemetery. And especially with an aging population, has become more of a concern. Um, we have our gray ribbon committee right now as a community that's looking at seniors issues specifically and so as far as the timeliness of this it is something that we as a council want to start looking at it's a, a benefit to the community that allows people that have dedicated their um, you know their lives to the community that have lived here for a long time that um, called summit county home to be able to find uh, a final resting place here and not have to go to Salt Lake or back to, you know, where they grew up or, or other stories that we've heard. So that is something that we are considering. It seemed last night, although we didn't take a vote on anything, that there was overwhelming um, desire from the council to continue pursuing this and see where we can find some space for a cemetery. Okay. And then quickly, the uh, strategic planning retreat, the county staff debriefed the council on this year's retreat, which provides some big picture guidance on county operations and procedures. Staff also spoke about an idea for an online dashboard that came up during the retreat to keep track of important projects, which the cemetery, I guess, would be included on that. Um, this would be something that the public would be available to see as well, or is it just kind of used for staff and council needs? 
The idea, and it is a work in progress, last night was the first time that the idea was delighted to all of council, and the idea is that it would allow for both staff and council as well as the public to see where we're at with specific projects. Uh, the idea was that we would take, you know, maybe 10 of the, the largest or most important projects and put those online so that we can all see where we're at and so the public can use that information as far as decision-making comments, feedback, as far as which, you know, 10 or, or perhaps more than that we would track. All of that is going to be in process as, as we work on this throughout this next year to determine um, the most useful way of presenting that information. The, the idea, and I, I believe it came initially from Council Member Hart, that really having, an, having a way for the public to interact with what we as a council are doing and understand what we're working on would be useful both for, both for us and for the public. And so, again, we will, be, we will be looking at this along with the community visioning process over this next calendar year to determine how can we most effectively present that information um, and what what additional utilities could we have and could we create through that dashboard okay anything else you want to mention melina i uh, just wanted to say thank you to our staff and also again to the utah association of counties for their support of summit county um, we've had a very intense legislative session over the last several weeks in particular and really appreciate all of all of the support there as we try to retain local control so that we can best respond to and support summit county community okay melina thanks so much for your time this morning thank you melina stevens is a member of the summit county council you're listening to the local news hour on kpcw well last fall the park record brought on its newest editor robert meyerwitz he joins me now on the phone to introduce himself to the community good morning thanks for joining us Hi, Leslie. So you started back in October. Why don't you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself, where, where you come from, and, and what you've been doing. Um, well, I, I was born at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Um, but in journalism, I came from, I started working as a foreign reporter uh, for public radio, actually. Um, and then I uh, spent a long time as a print reporter and editor in Alaska, and then uh, stayed in the West, mostly in Montana and Colorado, and I was in Durango, Colorado, before I came here. Okay, so why Park City? Well, um, you know, they were going through at the paper, it was they instead of us then, um, a bunch of changes, and one was the planned retirement of the publisher. So there was a new publisher. Um, the editor, who I think you knew, Baba, had left uh, sometime before that, and they were looking for a new editor. Um, and sort of, I, I think I had applied at one point, but months had gone by. I was interviewing for something radically different. Um, and, and I heard from the park record, and it just sounded like a neat opportunity. So it was a much smaller newsroom than what I was interviewing for, but in a way that appealed to me. Yeah. So how is it going? I mean, you got four four months under your belt here. Yeah, going on five, actually, uh, I think in three days. Uh, it's going great. I mean, I love it here. I love the paper. I especially love the people that I'm working with. So Val Spung took over as publisher the same day that I started as editor. So we sort of started together, although Val has been at the paper for more than 20 years in sales. Um, and we were sort of like a new team. 
And that's just a great opportunity in itself. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me. I mean, this is the first time I know of that the, the paper has decided to combine that sales director job that Val's been doing for many years with the publisher's job. That's previously been two positions. How, how is yeah. that working, or have you had to take over some of the publisher duties? No, no. I, and we split things pretty neatly, and um, because I've been an editor before at several papers, um, I'm sort of accustomed to that division of labor. I think, you know, it puts Val in the position of being responsible for more things. Um, and there's all the logistical things that go with being a publisher. So having to oversee that, which uh, she wasn't doing before, and that's added to her work. Um, I mean, it's going great from my point of view. And I think uh, Val is encouraged, too. Okay. It hasn't doubled her hours then, huh? No. No. I mean, I... You know, people are working, I think, pretty normal hours here. Um, so it's, and we have people who are commuting and people who are working remote, and that's been going on since the pandemic. Um, you know, there's always, I think it's, it's probably fair to say that Monday through Friday, there's always one and probably both of us, Val and I, here. Um, but it's not burdensome, I don't think. All right. Well, you know, work work can be fun, Um and, and I'm intent on it being that way as far as possible. But I, I have a different POV than reporters about how fun work is. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about staffing. Are you fully staffed at this point? Are you, are you looking for help? No. Uh, so I, I think, um, you know, the, the advantage of having somebody new and, and their disadvantages and advantages is that they don't come in with the prior expectations of this used to be bigger and this used to be more. And you can perennially feel that loss, especially if you've worked at a paper, and many people have now, that's been downsized. But I came in expecting the staff to be the size that it is. My job is to preserve that size and sort of maximize what we do. And some of that means not doing some things that we were doing before and, and being able to do other things. And that's in terms of kinds of stories, reporting, beats, et cetera. But there are things that, you know, we don't cover. Um, sort of categorically or not very often. Uh, I think it's in the back of everybody's minds here, at least on the news side, that if we had more resources, that's where they would go. But, but that's not a done deal either in the sense of what we would do with them or that we would have them. Yeah, so what, would, not, you, what would you do if you had more resources? Oh, um, I mean, there, there's a strong feeling, and I think this is shared by reporters who have been here just a little while and been here a long time um, and former editor or editors that uh, we should beef up coverage of education, uh, coverage of business locally um, with a person who's dedicated to doing those things. Is that justified? You know, I, I just don't know. Um, somebody full-time on a business beat, a local business beat, for example, I think it could be. You know, I feel the loss of uh, bigger picture reporting, for example, um, about uh, Bell Resorts, Inc., and about Altera, um, and Altera especially. It's sort of mysterious what's going on with the companies in the macro sense, especially with Altera, which is privately held. Um, but those things do affect us locally. And, you know, there isn't somebody here locally who's dedicated to going through like the the information that is available from the SEC more for Vail than for Altera, but 
Um, you know, there are conference calls that Bell Resorts has, I think, more than quarterly. Um, I'm not sure if anybody is covering those. So things like that, maybe. But I don't know. You know, you also have to shape a job to the person. Um, and people come with different strengths and weaknesses. So you can say, well, we're going to get this new person and put them on this beat. It may evolve into something else. And that's good. Yeah. One of the one of the first big decisions you made was the decision to part ways with longtime columnist Terry Orr. I mean, uh, pretty popular with with local readers. Um, why why that decision? Was it just time? Well, I, I, popularity has nothing to do with it. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, relative to the other columnists, you know, probably uh, consistently not as well read in measurable ways like online analytics. Um, but she had been attached to the newspaper for a long time, it's true. Um, so what was the second part of your question? Why? Yeah. Um, well, that's something that we haven't really discussed other than to say that, uh, that we had made this change. Um, we discussed it uh, internally. It wasn't a decision that we took lightly. And I think uh, we explained the reason to Terry Orr, and that was it. All right. So I'm not saying more about it now, but it's been a long time. You know, it's been, I think, four months since since we were together. Yeah. Uh, let's. You had mentioned kind of the, the the digital aspects of the the newsroom there. How how does the the park record use digital tools? I mean, can you you obviously can tell what stories I'm guessing resonate with with your readers? Okay. So are, are you asking how do we use analytics like Chartbeat yeah. or proprietary? analytics or Google analytics. Right. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of discussion uh, within the Swift newspaper group, which is now a subsidiary of the Ogden newspaper group, about the need for more and different kinds of analytics. Um, you know, I, I worked, I started editing a newspaper in Alaska when we didn't have those tools, although we were online. Um, so I love them and I love checking them, but I need a single benchmark. And in some ways it doesn't matter what it is, so whether it's KPI or it's like average page views, um, because what I need to do is compare, you know, week over week or month over month or day over day or story over story. Um, but there are, for marketing reasons, especially different and more enhanced tools. I just look at raw numbers and, you know, I'm sort of addicted, so I'll look at them probably more than I should five or six times a day. Um, and I don't know if the reporters are that attuned to the analytics. I think they are. I think, you know, they have desktop access and, and they're checking the same sort of unrefined numbers that I am. Um, they, I think they probably do want to know how their stories are doing compared to each other. Um, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm more concerned with the whole thing. So uh, this week online, we've had several letters that have done extraordinarily well for letters online for us. And we only recently started breaking them out like as individual pieces of content online. Um, I mean, it's interesting to ask why this letter and not another, but you know, what you have to do is if you're lucky enough to get letters and put the best letters that you have in the paper and online, you sort of have to leave it at that because oftentimes something like a letter to the editor becomes popular, right? In terms of a lot of pages because so many people disagree with it or they think it's completely preposterous and, and, that can be the case. It's not like we're soliciting those views. Um, our job with a lot of opinion stuff is to get out of the way and still be responsible. 
Yeah, speaking of uh, that editorial page, though, uh, your editorials, and maybe this is just a, a result of you being so new, maybe wanting to wait to take a stand on, on local issues, but will we begin to see more local content on that uh, editorial page there? There's quite a bit. And so there's uh, typically, uh, and this is what fits, so uh, Wednesday's paper, yesterday's, um, I think there were six letters to the editor. Yeah, but I'm... Either two or three guest editorials. Um, I, actually, I don't think we ran a local editorial because we had so much Dakota Pacific stuff. That's correct. And my, right. My feeling was, and I'd actually written an editorial, which is online now, and will run on Saturday. The editorial I wrote is about a House bill, which was introduced in the state legislature uh, 10 days ago, uh, attempting to legislate neutrality in public school instruction. And so, I mean, it's local. It obviously affects local schools. But uh, when I saw that I couldn't print more than half of all the Dakota Pacific guest editorials and some other things that, that these people feel are really urgent, right, because things are happening and they're losing power, et cetera, um, I couldn't justify writing my editorial about this uh, state house bill, which has been introduced and given one hearing and may go nowhere. So I held it for Saturday, but it'll run on Saturday unless, you know, I get overwhelmed again with either Dakota Pacific or for some reason, pickleball. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of people want to want to be heard about pickleball, not just in the paper, but also in the paper. Yeah. Um, finally, I just wanted, I mean, how do you define your role as a, a community newspaper editor? Well, you know, we used to talk about community newspapers as opposed to regular newspapers. And uh, community news gathering or editing was sort of second tier or like minor league. And what it meant when people talked about community journalism was essentially it boiled down to this. You did prep school sports coverage and you printed school lunch menus, among other things. Um that bottle is gone. You know, it's, it's, it's broken, it's gone. So what we do on a smaller scale isn't any different, for example, uh, than, I, let's take the Denver Post is doing on a larger scale. I mean, the Denver Post is struggling, but it's a paper I'm familiar with. Uh, so it's not like community journalism. We're running different kinds of things. And that's because, you know, we have limited resources. We have limited space uh, in print. Um, so it, it's, you know, I was editing an alt-weekly in Alaska, which was very mainstream as alt-weeklies go. Um, and I don't think what I was looking for uh, from staff and freelancers was any different than what I'm looking for now. Um, it's not, so I think, you know, and I was a reporter at a big metro paper. Um, I didn't really think about the audience all the time. Um, you know, as a reporter and a feature writer, what I did was I sort of aimed in, in my writing. I didn't have an ideal writer of mine. I wanted uh, to write for the smartest people who will inevitably be smarter than I am. Um, and I think all news gatherings should sort of have that aim. And, you know, are you going to leave some people behind because you're too smart? I haven't ever seen that happen. Um, I, you know, the problem is when you don't aim high enough. Yeah. 
And finally, I had sent you a report from last year. It actually showed that U.S. digital newspaper ad revenue expected to surpass print revenue by 2026. Have you, has the park record already crossed that threshold? Well, no, because, um, so you sent me something from Axios, and, you know, they do some slicing and dicing, and they're trying to do, like, a big macro thing there, second source. Um, Mm -hmm. So we don't have digital revenue uh, from subscriptions, right? And what they're talking about is digital subscription revenue uh, combined with advertising revenue and then print uh, subs and advertising. Because we're free online, um, we don't measure that way. Uh, But advertising, you know, is what sustains us just like it does. I don't know. Did you hear the story about NPR yesterday? No. no. Oh, yes, about the cutbacks. Yes, I have. So they're going to cut 10% of the workforce across the board, but targeting the cuts. Um, But they said, and David Folkenflik reported, you know, did a really good job, um, but reported that this was due to a projected 30%, $30 million loss in advertising revenue. Um, You know, NPR, and I worked for them for a while, never used to talk about underwriting as advertising, but now they do, and so, so does David Folkenflik. Um, and it's an ad-supported media business that is having the same difficulties. You know, last year, the Washington Post lost half a million uh, digital subscribers. It, it, it fits into this larger picture of what's going on with advertising. It affects us, and I assume it affects you, too. Um, we don't know where advertisers are going. We know that they have left, in considerable numbers, Facebook. We know that they left Twitter in considerable numbers, and everybody's sort of trying to guess where is the ad money going. Meanwhile, your job, you know, in development at KPCW, ours in sales, but I don't really work on that side, is to try and bring them back to local news at this point. Yeah, and I guess I would just clarify that uh, NPR does not accept advertising. They accept corporate sponsorship, as they call, and it's a nonprofit. It's, 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 diff- it's a bigger difference than regular commercial advertising than for-profit. Advertising. My point is that MPR now calls it advertising, and yeah. so does David Folkenflik, NPR's media reporter. Yeah. So they're not making that distinction anymore, and I don't think listeners do either, you know. Um, I don't think readers do. Yeah. Readers well, are more concerned with where you're getting money from and whether you're getting money especially from corporations, right? Yeah, and just the way that uh, that is presented to the public as opposed to come by now, you know, Discounted 50%. You don't hear that on public radio. But that's a conversation no, for but, another day. But, but I, you know, I've worried about this forever. I worried about it when I was at NPR about the conflict between underwriting and news content. And because of NPR's particular relationship with Amazon, it led them two days ago to run the most torturous disclaimer I've ever heard about while it's true that NPR spends money on Amazon for services and receives money from Amazon, it doesn't influence the way in which we report stories about Amazon. And you think at the end of that, I know these people. I trust them. But you, you've got to think as an average, you know, uh, casual listener, uh, nobody's buying that. And, and that's true across media. So nobody thinks that we are free of influence from our advertisers. Nobody thinks that anybody is free of influence. And, you know, this is a dilemma for the news media everywhere, um, and and there's no exceptions that I can see. People have become really cynical about uh, funding, um, regardless of you know the corporate structure, uh, and I 
it's, it's a fact, yeah, as far as I can see. It's not something that we can argue away. Um, the only solution, I mean, at least from my viewpoint as an editor, is to sort of stick to our knitting and uh, aim to give them a story tomorrow that wasn't something that they were expecting and that in some way nourishes them. And there's lots of ways to do that. But, you know, I, I mean, I've been to countless Unitarian things and Rotary things, and I've been on interviews talking about, you know, wh wh what are we to do about the lack of trust in the media today? Um, and I, I think sticking to our knitting is the answer because everything else that I've seen people try, you know, in good faith, uh, doesn't really seem to, to change people's minds. Okay. And it's not really our job to change people's minds. They're very influenced by what other people say on social media. Um, now that they have social media, you know, it's sort of hard to, to get that cow back in the barn. Okay. Well, I need to get onto my knitting project, and I know you do too. Robert, <laughs> thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Leslie. That's Park Record Editor Robert Meyerwitz. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. The Latino Parents Leaders and Wasatch Parent Network is hosting its first ever multicultural night next week. On the phone with details are a couple of the organizers, the principal of Timpanogos Middle School, James Judd, along with the Wasatch School District's Family and Community Engagement Coordinator, Yuri Jensen. Thanks for, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start and talk about these two different organizations. Yuri, maybe you start with what is the Latino Parents Leaders Group? Yeah, our Latino parent leader is a group of parents, Latino parents, who are committing to supporting a student's education. Um, they are a bridge between our school and our community. And the mission that we have in Timpanogos Middle School is that all students are successful, they achieve high level, and are prepared for Wasatch High School. So these parents, we have 42 parents who meet um, twice a month, and we plan events, we build relationships with families and staff, uh, we share culture, traditions, and um, one of the things that we have been working on is planning an event. We have done many events, but this is a multicultural event coming up, and that's why WPN will be there to support us. And Mr. Jack can talk about WPN. Go ahead, James. So the Wasatch Parent Network, with WPN, this is Wasatch County's uh, kind of metamorphosis from uh, the PTA organization that exists across most of the nation. Um, a few years ago, they consolidated and rebranded and reorganized. So this is our, this is the district and the school's parent network um, that is the harmony where uh, the schools and the parents and the community work together. And so the purpose of any kind of parent network is just to be a place where we know that schools sit embedded within a community and so there's a lot of things that schools have their stewardship and their direction that, that they're trying to do and we exist in the community also and so this is a place where parents and the schools work in concert with each other for things that aren't just necessarily academic that the school does but just all things including things like multicultural nights and things like that. Yeah. So why did the groups think that such an event like this was, was needed? Well, um, we, we started our Latino Parent Network uh, group um, about a little less than two years ago. And um, this group of parents, um, in, in collaboration with, with me and the school, kind of looked at what kinds of things they can do to 
um, just bring that community into a more uh, harmonious and productive relationship with the rest of the community. And so they've taken on quite a few initiatives. And one of the initiatives, and this is all just parent-led, is they reached out to the parent network, the Wasatch Parent Network, and said, let's, let's do an event together. So this is kind of our first event where both of these different parent organizations are trying to celebrate an event together. And so the, the idea behind it was um, we, we, we do have a representative uh, group of cultures, um, you know, maybe not as robust as some of the schools in the Wasatch Front, but kind of this connection um, where we can find different ways to celebrate all the, all the different cultures that kind of make up our school community. We have a, in our school, we have a house system uh, where we kind of divide the school into houses, um, kind of very, you know, Hogwarts kind of style. Um, and these houses all um, have a heritage piece to them that come from a specific country. So it was kind of the house system that, that spurred the idea of we'll, we'll, we'll celebrate all these kinds of cultures that we can. And so Yuri can talk to specifically like how many cultures we have coming to be represented on that night. But that was, that was kind of the genesis of this was what's an event that both parent groups can collaborate on um, to make basically something fun and meaningful for the community to come participate in. Okay, so Yuri, the family and community event yeah. will take place after school Monday, the 27th, 6 to 8 p.m. there at Timpanogos. Tell us what's going to happen. Well, I, um, I would like to tell you why we're doing this. We want to promote inclusion and cultural awareness as we celebrate and respect diversity in our school community, just like Mr. Jatt said. Um, there are 17 countries that are, we're going to have represented in our school. Some of them are represented by staff. Some of them are represented by parents and, and their families and their kids. And some of them are community members. So we're very lucky. Even though they're 17, as I'm talking with parents and inviting them, I hear that the many have, you know, different background roots, and it makes us so excited. So for, to be the first event, we're very lucky to have 17. But in the future, who knows, you know, we might end up having more countries. And um, we're going to have, just to walk us through the event, we're going to have um, five performances. There is a jazz band from the high school who's coming. Um, dancers that are coming from Ireland, Peru, and Bolivia. And, I mean, they are citizens of the United States. They live here in, in, some of them are coming from Logan, and we're so excited. Some of them are coming from Salt Lake City. But there's groups that are also, you know, they're organized, and they're coming to perform at our event and share a little bit about the culture. I think that, that's amazing for us. And um, we're also, um, just to walk you through what we're going to do, we're going to have, um, every table is going to host a country, and we're all going to have display boards. They're going to talk a little bit about interesting facts from the country, and we're also going to provide samples of traditional foods, desserts, and drinks. So we're very, very excited for this event, and that will take place, like I said, on Monday the 27th from 6 to 8. Okay. I've got to leave it there. Good luck with the uh, first ever, because if it's popular, you'll bring it back, I'm guessing. That's right. Thank you very much. Okay. Yuri Jensen and James Judd. Again, that's happening. The Family and Community Event, Monday, February 27th at Timpanogos Moogle School from 6 to 8 p.m. There will be music, performances, food, prizes, and uh, 
lots of fun as they embrace diversity and inclusion. You're listening to the local news hour here on KPCW.